We're doing it live this week on a very special Thanksgiving. It's not Thanksgiving. <laughs> on a very special Halloween episode of the Eldritch Lorecast. It's very fitting that we delayed our discussion of the Deck of Many Things because the Deck of Many Things has now been delayed. I'm kind of curious about this idea of we've added more cards to the deck. Um, but Butt Flag have- um, Did you say Butt Flag? <laughs> uh, Wizards of the Coast. They're refocusing on interactive entertainment. From what they were saying. That's surprising to me, actually. MCDM are launching their crowdfunding for the MCDM RPG in December. It's typically unwise to launch a crowdfunding campaign in December. Critical Role sold out Wembley Arena. The Lorecast listeners are from all over the world. How many of them could we get in one room? I bet we could t definitely get 12. Mm. Uh, James, oh no, I almost did it again. <laughs> are you okay? <laughs> no, it's so spooky in here. I think my brain's overheating from having this satin bag on my head. <laughs> Dale, you do it. Are you scared? You should be. All that and more right now. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lorecast, the greatest, the most famous, the most renowned throughout all the realms of tabletop RPG podcasts. I shall be your host for this evening, the greatest and most humble of the witcher's companions, the Bard Dandelion. My name is Ben Byrne, and I am joined as always by James Haig, Dale Kingsmill, Sean Merwin, and Sean, what have you dressed at for this Spooky edition of the Eldritch Lawcast. The most terrifying thing uh, I could think of was relatives. So I am Cousin Eddie <laughs> from <laughs> National Lampoon Christmas Vacation. I The only beverage, alcoholic beverage I had was a cider. That didn't quite fit, so I don't have that or the cigar, but otherwise I'm full in character. Fair, fair. Uh, Dale Kingsmill for this uh, creepy episode of the Lawcast. Yeah, I didn't so much go creepy. Uh, I, I've gone with Marty McFly from Back to the Future. Uh, I couldn't find my aviators, but I remembered that I had a, a future hat. So a little bit of mix and matching between the first and second film, but we'll make it work. <laughs> how, how is the future now that you've come back? Never ask. <laughs> All right, fair enough. That's, that's a safe bet. Uh, James Hake, uh, your costume for this evening? A podcast host is never late, nor is he early, Ben Byrne. He arrives precisely when he means to. Um, my costume for Halloween this year is sexy Gandalf the White, but I thought that would scandalize the lore cast a little bit. So I decided to be uh, Gandalf has a nice cozy afternoon in with the dwarves for this particular showing. We've got a lot, a loot. We've got a loot uh, of news <laughs> to get through uh, today. So let us crack on uh, into that news, uh, starting with now, it's very fitting that we delayed our discussion of the Deck of Many Things because the Deck of Many Things has now been delayed. Uh, speaking of spooky things, the spookiest <laughs> of all, manufacturing delays. <laughs> yes, the Deck of Many Things physical release has been delayed with no new date announced yet, as far as I know, at time of recording. Uh, the digital release is unaffected. It will still release on November 14th. And if anybody pre-ordered the physical plus digital bundle through D&D Beyond, they'll still get access to the digital on October 31st. So today you should, oh, well, tomorrow if you're in the States. Um, so that should uh, still work out. 
Um, uh, has anybody, has any, have, have any of us to kind of merge two discussions together? Have any of us been able to get their hands on the deck? Uh, is anybody excited for this product when it finally arrives? No, and not really. I haven't gotten my hands on it, but I'm kind of curious about this this idea of we've added more cards to the deck. I'm curious. I don't know whether I would say I'm excited. I, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what has been added, uh, what direction they've gone in, because I just feel like there's something um, delightfully old school mean spirited about the deck of many things. <laughs> um, and I can't help but uh, theorize that the the new additions might not be quite so mean spirited. And I don't know how I feel about that yet. Yeah, I think uh, from a couple of reviews that I've looked at, they've said that the extra, so I think it's what, 22 cards is the original deck and they've added another 44 cards for a total of 66, Ooh. I believe off the top of my head. Um, but the idea is that it's uh, kind of you build your own deck of many things, which I really like that customizability of it. Mm -hmm. And from what I've heard uh, through the the framing of complaint, in all honesty, but I actually think it's a good thing, um, is that the new set of cards tend towards the less game-breaking, the less uh, mean-spirited towards the players uh, and kinder. Um, I don't know what those things are specifically, but... Um, I, I, in all honesty, love the sound of this product. I didn't think I would at all. I did not think that, like, the deck of many things sounded like the most hokey, uh, high fantasy, ridiculous thing. Uh, but when they put out a video, I think last week, they talked about different ways to use the deck. And one suggestion that I really, really liked uh, was this idea that you don't draw a card and then whatever the card says instantly happens, but you draw a card and it's like fortune telling for the future of the campaign. So if you draw a card that gives you riches, it's not like a pile of money suddenly drops on top of you or your bank account suddenly goes to full. It's a suggestion to the GM and uh, in some capacity the players that uh, they will find riches soon you know, in their in their future in a much more organic, natural way. If they draw the death card where the Grim Reaper is trying to kill them, doesn't mean a Reaper is suddenly going to apparate out of nowhere and start trying to kill them. It might mean that someone in the campaign is actively hunting for them and wants to murder them. And so it allows you to kind of use the deck of many things as an improv suggestion mechanism uh, that's played out in front of the players so they feel more involved in it. Uh, but it's still up to the GM to be able to build atmosphere around the deck um, so that it doesn't have to feel like a magic genie kind of rubbing the lamp and suddenly something magical happens, which I was very suddenly like, okay, that sounds cool. I'm into that idea. Um, There's a lot about that that I do really like. But again, the, <laughs> the old school deck is just so iconic in the way that it'll wreck your <laughs> Sorry, Dante. But, um, you know, it's just there's something about the way that the deck can just instantly destroy everything that I think plays into this, this risk reward thing with the players. They're like, we've got this magic item. It's a legendary magic item. And I could draw a card from it right now and it could change everything for the better. Or I could instantly die or I could end the world or, you know, any number of things. And that um, you know, back and forth. Do I draw a card? Do I not draw a card? I just wonder whether there'll be less of that. But at the same time, I do like the sound of everything that you just described. 
Yeah, I, I don't think that the the way that the new and again, this is all going on preview information. By the sounds of it, none of us have insider knowledge or have seen the actual product ourselves yet. Um, so this is just going off what they've said in preview. But the the intention is that it's customizable. That kind of zany draw instant effect is still possible with the deck and probably still the predominant way that it would be used or they expect it to be used. Um, but they've accounted for alternative uses for it to suit different types of campaigns. Um, that makes me excited for it in a way that I I didn't expect to be. Plus you get a pretty prop deck. Very few things destroyed campaigns back in first edition days like the deck of many things. As a player who loves chaos, I loved it. As a DM who likes campaigns to continue, I hated it. And I <laughs> In fourth edition, they created a great pro uh, product called um, so The Secrets of Gardmar Abbey or something about Gardmar Abbey. And they did an incredible job of tying the deck to a story. And so that gives me hope that this new product will do the same thing. And and the, the way you're talking, it sounds like they have. Yeah, I, I've seen other uses where you can plot a whole campaign by sort of drawing cards from the deck. And it's not necessarily, again, draw instant effect. But the idea is That's kind cool. of, uh, Talaman has said in the chat, kind of like how the Taroka deck works in Curse of Strahd. I'm not super familiar with how the Taroka deck works, but that's not the first time I've heard that comparison. So I assume that there, there's possibly some design crossover that they've borrowed there. Um, that suggests, you know, you draw a card and that gives you a location. And then you draw another card and that gives you like a, a purpose for going to that location. I'm, I'm, I'm misquoting because I'm going off the top of my head, but it's sort of something like that. And you end up drawing about eight cards. Some of them you place across others to kind of enhance or affect another card. And that helps you plot out the course of your campaign. Like a terrorist um, spread. That's cool. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, I really like the sound of this product, particularly the physical deck, uh, which has problems that we'll get to in a moment, which is why it's been delayed. Um, and this book that kind of, gives you options and ideas about how to use this deck in different ways uh, when a different card is drawn. Sort so of that plot the, hooks attached to the deck, right, is, is yeah. a, a sort of thing for the book. And I'm kind of, I, I am kind of excited about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so there's there's two books. There's a 120-page uh, book about uh, kind of with short campaigns, one-shots for for acquiring the deck, uh, some lore, I think. There's some magic items in there. I think a background or two in there. So there's all that kind of, you know, typical uh, expansion for 5e style stuff in that 120-page book. And then the 80-page book, which is uh, here's the possible effects for each car, each of these 66 cards that we've come up with. Uh, you can choose how to how to integrate these effects into your game based on that card being drawn. Uh, and then there's the physical card itself, uh, physical deck of cards, I should say, itself, which assuming that they're well-made, uh, uh, look very pretty from what I've seen with their gold foiling and, and artwork and such. Uh, the big question that's being asked around the community, and I'm kind of curious for your takes, is does that sound worth $100 US, which is the retail, what, what they're retailing it for? I kind of think yes, but I'm in the, in the sphere of $100 Australian. Um I think that's worth it, but but a lot of folks. Uh, it's hard to tell what the conversion really is between Australian It'll and US be, within what, the context like of their economy. Forty, 
So I've seen it here retailed for like 130, but most retailers are discounting it down to about 110, 100 here in Australia. So that, that's la. pretty reasonable, but mm-hmm. um, I, I, well, I don't know. Let's, how. let's look at it this way. Uh, in an argument that is often stated, but rarely seems to change anyone's mind, how many hours of entertainment are you going to get out of this product? And will that actually make a difference to anyone who wants to buy it? Sure. In a standard RPG book, which you pay $50 for, probably $60 now after the price increases. Yeah. Uh, you're going to get well over 100 hours of enjoyment for four, five, six different people. So 600 human hours of fun. Uh, you know, you compare that to the the cost of a movie or even the cost of a single player video game. I mean, like if you look at it from that sort of utilitarian perspective, it is an unbelievable value. Uh, mm. But I I don't think humans are that purely logical and utilitarian in their thinking. Uh, they see a price increase of any kind, even if it's for a whole new peripheral, they'll add a whole bunch of like uh, immersion value to the product, right? People love props, but people don't much love paying for props. But also on the other end of humans aren't that utilitarian and practical. Pretty thing. Pretty thing mm. makes pretty good nice. The problems, and there's actually a pretty good video on a YouTube channel called Game Masters, one word, which gives a fairly good kind of look at what the physical manufacturing problems are, um, which are that the cards are warped, uh, which is a common issue apparently when you try to foil cards. Uh I imagine that's probably especially true if you're foiling along the edges because the foiling just kind of, uh, you know, has, you know, pulls on the cardboard or something, I assume, which warps the card. And the second problem is that the cards are of different size um, by millimeters, but like in a printing uh, capacity, they're kind of three different sizes, which makes a huge difference to how they feel to shuffle. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you might even be able to tell which one of a group of cards you're about to draw based on the size comparison to the rest of the cards in the deck. So that's definitely not ideal. And that definitely tarnishes the value proposition of, of purchasing this, which wizards are now deciding to address, which is despite the, the, the unfortunate delay, a a good thing over shipping a, a product, which doesn't meet standard, but assuming that the cards aren't warped and they're all the same size, this is a beautiful looking product. Oh. Like I, I would want to pull this out at my table. It brings out all the oohs and the ahs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I feel like I have not seen that much focus on the wow factor of the peripheral in the marketing of this thing. I've mostly seen it about the contents of the book. And uh, when I think about the D&D you know, ancillary products that I want to buy, like dice and stuff like that, I get these gorgeous glamour shots of them shoved in my face on social media and ads. And uh, I just haven't seen that done for for these cards. Have you? Not a lot, to be honest. The only time I've seen them has been people complaining about the quality of them. So, <laughs> um, but even even within that that Game Master's video, as he shows them off, I'm like, oh yeah, I can see the problems. But they're still super pretty. Like I still, you know, want an idealized version of those. I wonder if the average person will think the same, the average mm. DM, because it's going to be DMs who are buying this book. 
especially there's relatively, from what I understand, limited player content in there. It's sort of mm. magic items and, uh, you know, player backgrounds, but there's two of those. So it's kind of like you take a glance at them, you want them, you don't. Um, Sean, what do you think? About what? This was just an interesting tidbit, but it's uh, doubly interesting to put context around it. So the the cliff notes of this story being that uh, Wizards of the Coast, uh, their Q3 or uh, revenue is up by about 40% on Q3 of last year. So July, August, September, uh, for folks who may not know, I'm not sure. Um, uh, the amount of money that they made is higher. However, when you see a headline that says, Wizards of the Coast revenue is up, it's like, oh, wow, D&D must be selling really well. Ah, uh, uh, uh. the reason that their revenue is up uh, is predominantly what they're uh, attributing it to is a little bit Magic the Gathering. Uh, Magic's been going strong, apparently. Uh, but also Baldur's Gate uh, <laughs> is sold really strong and made them a bag of money. Uh, and also Monopoly Go, which is a mobile game, uh, obviously not related to Wizards, but they've kind of bundled yeah, that's Wizards weird, of the right? Coast and their digital, like, areas together. I agree, Dale. That is weird. But okay. Yeah, if, uh, sure. If you, read, if you read from quarter to quarter the reports that you get, they'll move things around. So one time they'll talk about this group and you're not sure if D&D is in that group or that group or what. So there's some investor shenanigans, shell game stuff going on to say what they want to say and sort of downplay what they want to downplay. And let the words fall out. Honestly, I want to see. Okay. No, yeah, I've no idea where you went with that. Say what you want to say. I can't be the only one. Despite how I'm dressed, I'm not right. uh, generally down with the Live your the, life. The Keep popular talking. music. <laughs> uh, interestingly, Hasbro's revenue as total is down 10% for Q3, um, but they still seem pretty positive from what I was reading uh, about their strategy in terms of the fact that they've sold off E1 now. They're looking less at trying to produce... Uh, how do I phrase this? Uh, I want to say entertainment, but entertainment is definitely something they would still use as, as selling their own company. But they're, they're less in the kind of like film and television production side of things and focusing on play, what they do best, according to themselves. So hmm. They're refocusing on interactive entertainment? From what they were saying, from what I could tell, yeah. That's that's surprising to me, actually, after everything we've talked about this year from the OGL crisis to now to the common sort of buzz phrase of D&D is under monetized. I think we were all highly expecting a switch to broad uh, or <laughs> this is going to say to branding as the main focus of D&D's money making scheme, right? Branding uh video games and movies and tv shows and stuff like that but if that's what they're saying now that they're focusing away less on passive entertainment and more back on their core uh pillars of gamified entertainment uh it leads me to believe that uh this is inspired largely by the dnd movie not wowing them with their box office results because I, I think we, i think we saw it. they made back their money and they made a profit, but it was not the mind-blowing profit that, you know, Marvel movies had probably trained the the corporate bankers to expect from a release like that. 
this was Hasbro talking, not necessarily Wizards of the Coast talking. Mm. So I think it's maybe Hasbro's intention to focus their efforts specifically on interactive play, but they would still look at licensing um, where it would make sense to external companies as opposed to their previous strategy being to own E1 and be able to produce movies semi-in-house. That's what I am inferring from the information. So we're not going to get another battleship starring Liam Neeson is what you're telling me. Yeah, I I know it's not what we're here for, but also I'm a little bit like focused on like, what does this mean for Power Rangers? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the the D&D movie definitely didn't do what people hoped it would do, which is is sad. But um, I watched that movie on the plane back from from Gen Con. It's a good movie. I still like it. Battleship? No. <laughs> D&D? Which one? The D&D movie. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. I was really hoping you, uh, you'd watch Battleship starring Liam Neeson. Yeah, on a plane. Right on a plane. That seems like the perfect time to watch Battleship starring Liam Neeson. We're congr- contractually obligated to say starring Liam Neeson after every time you say Battleship. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Speaking of uh, learning about new things, because I didn't know Battleship with Liam Neeson was a movie before... Uh, something else Wizards of the Coast are doing, which is cool, uh, is partnering with an organization called adoptaclassroom.org, uh, offering hardcover copies of four D&D books, including uh, the three core books plus uh, Candlekeep Mysteries, a copy of uh, some terrain sets, the, the campaign cases that they came out with earlier this year, uh, and the essentials kit, donating it to up to 200 schools, I believe. I'm looking for the number right now. Yes, 200 schools um, plus a $100 library grant uh, to the schools that get the books. That's cool. Get more D&D in schools. Let's all just do the double thumbs up at the same time. Every time this happens, I have like a little sort of worry in the back of my head that we're going to make D&D really uncool uh by making it like in schools and libraries and stuff like that but then i like eh, whatever that's the secret james <laughs> we've always been uncool <laughs> yes good <laughs> good <laughs> i think D here in australia there's a, a lot of schools that i'm aware of that have D clubs which i think is cool uh which is usually a, an initiative by one of the teachers who's passionate about the game or there might be a small group of kids uh at a couple of schools that i uh, taught at who were running their own D&D game. Actually, super funny, quick story. When I was at a school once, a student tried to lie to me about something. I was like, hey, put that away. And they're like, I don't have anything, sir. And I said, uh, deception check failed. And one of the other kids went, oh, you play D&D? Uh, anyway, that was a funny side story. <laughs> it is still relatively fringe in terms of like the, the perception uh, of, uh, you know, I think kids are less likely to start at their own D&D group in school if, there isn't one that's established by the, the, the staff. This is complete conjecture, I suppose. Um, but having these resources in school and having the school being able to say like, yeah, we're starting this club or we have these books available and kind of making it seem like something that's easily accessible and, you know, fun to do, but also destigmatizing it as a, as a niche hobby or a nerdy hobby or something like that, I think uh, is, is good for getting more people to try out role-playing games because they might find their thing the the change in perception of the hobby over the last 20 years 40 years 50 years has been incredible uh when i first started at the software company i worked for in the mid 1990s uh, we brought it up that i play this game do some work for this game 
and all of this, like the salespeople and the customer support people were like, uh, you know, like looking around awkwardly, like they wanted to leave the room. <laughs> and 20 years later, those same people who are now having children are calling me up and asking, how can I get involved? What do I need to buy them? How? Right. So that's that's how things have changed. So we are seeing schools that 20 years ago, I know for sure would never have allowed the game into its building are now trying to create these clubs that bring kids together to play games and socialize. So yeah, we've seen a huge sea change in that area. And I know Wizards has even more initiatives that they're that they're working on uh, that we'll hear about more as as uh, time passes. Speaking of new initiatives, um, breaking news, a little bit of breaking news. This isn't on the run sheet, but uh, worth just uh, mentioning because I was a little surprised. Uh, MCDM are launching the crowdfunding. I believe it's a Kickstarter. I actually can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but they are launching their crowdfunding for the MCDM RPG in December of all months, uh, starting, I think, on the 6th or the 7th uh, of December. So there's something to look forward to in the Christmas period? It's typically unwise to launch a crowdfunding uh, campaign in December because of your competition with the Christmas holidays. But, they will be uh, negotiating those uh, budgets a lot, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Nice one, Ben. I, I, I see what you did there. Uh, but I, I don't know. The, the MCDM has always kind of marched to the beat of its own drum, so maybe it's got this is true. Maybe it's got a sort of scheme that goes against conventional wisdom. I mean, it's paid off for them in the past. I just really want to see. And if if they don't do it themselves, then we'll do it on the Lawcast on the week that they launch. <laughs> I really want to see just a thumbnail of Matt Colville dressed as santa claus that's all that's all i need because <laughs> i think he'd make a great santa claus <laughs> i feel like there's no chance in hell that's gonna happen so everyone look forward to that law cast thumbnail uh, <laughs> uh I, I think that you can go sign up for updates if you want to uh, on that one but yeah launching in december i don't think they've said too much else about it speaking of new role-playing games sort of uh, Black Flag, uh, this is reheating news a little bit for us. This happened mid-October and uh, it kind of skipped past me. Um, but Black Flag have Black Flag, rather. Um, Did you say Butt Flag? <laughs> I said Back Flag. Thank you. The Buck Flag? <laughs> e pluribus um, anus. Uh, <laughs> the Cobalt Press Black Flag RPG reference document version one uh, has been made public for folks to, I suppose, start using for creating their, um, even though the rules I have to imagine at this point aren't quite finalised. Um, maybe this is just a, a, a look at, uh, an initial kind of glance at to see what the rules are going to look like. Uh, has anybody looked through these? Yes, I have. I have been working on projects Ooh. that uh, that are going to take into account these. And we've already discussed this. It was Cobalt Press worried that they were not going to be able to use the open gaming license anymore? And so they created a new version of the game that would always be around. And that's what it is. And it's good. It's good to have choices. It's good to have options. You know, more power to them as we see what they come up with in terms of products. Because I like me some Cobalt I Press stuff. This is kind of unrelated to Black Flag, though. I will bring it back in. But I randomly ran into Wolfgang Bauer at the Seattle Opera House attending an Eddie Izzard comedy show uh, <laughs> just like last week. So, As one does. 
as one does. It was it was bizarre. I just turned and there was Wolfgang Bauer. It was awesome. Very humanizing moment for me and Wolfgang. Um, <laughs> but th- that anecdote aside, um, I think the thing I'm most interested in for Black Flag and the thing I pray most for its you know future is that it has a long future. Right? We have so many. AD&D retro clones out there, right? Dungeon Crawl Classics, Castles and Crusades, uh, more that I don't know the names of because I'm not really plugged into that scene. Um, and I'm really curious to see if in in the wake of all of this, there will also be kind of in, in the course of the next five to 10 years, a sort of tide of 5e-ish retro clones as people get nostalgic for 2014, which is a sort of devastating sentence for me to say. Oh, um, <laughs> and, and I'm really curious to see how just kind of like Pathfinder has changed and evolved and become something of its own beast in the fantasy gaming sphere. Will black flag will tales of the valiant have a similar sort of uh, divergent evolution as it becomes its own thing distinct from, uh, you know, whatever one D&D becomes. I have an important question. Is it still called a uh, fantasy quest adventure game? What's what's Tales the name? Tales of the Valiant is the, the name one. of the is, game. Okay, yes. okay, okay. But the SRD is being called Black Flag? Correct. Why hmm. are we just calling the game Black Flag? Whatever, it's fine. It's I, I'm not upset about it. Well, I suppose it's because the, I don't know, like the SRD... The basic rules, uh, like, are they the D&D rules, you know? Because sometimes they're, like, uh, people can get into a habit of of saying, oh, because I've used the rules for D&D in this game uh, that I've created or this adventure that I've created, which technically and legally speaking is not true. You're not allowed to say it's a D&D game unless you're publishing it through That's DMs true. Guild or something. It's a 5e game. Um, so maybe they're trying to make that distinction. Um, again, this is also, like... Uh, a version one, the this this SRD might change, um, and so they might rename it at that point. Um, but it is intended, I think, for people to be able to use it to create not their own games, their own identities of games, without it necessarily being called a, a Tales of the Valiant mm. game. Maybe if I were them, I'd swap them because I think the Black Flag is memorable <laughs> and brandworthy, whereas Tales of the Valiant, I literally couldn't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I didn't have a detailed look at this document. I only had a, a quick flick through it. Um, but I have two questions. Well, one's a comment. The second is a question. The first comment is that it seems like they've gone back to uh, rolled monster damage instead of standard monster damage in their stat blocks, which I am so, so grateful for. Initially, they had for a little while there, like monsters just do 17 damage. And then if you wanted to figure out what you would roll, if you're the DM who wanted to roll it, you had to go to to consult a chart, which like was the monster's size times something else. This is just so much easier because if you want standard damage, it's there in the stat block. But if you want to roll damage, it's also there in the stat block, uh, which I think is, it's fun to roll dice. And I think GMs are allowed to have that fun too, if they, if they choose to. Can I, can um, I make a, a somewhat uh, perpendicular interjection here? Sure. I've got a question for, for all of you, because I've, I've finally gotten into playing Baldur's Gate 3. And it's consuming my every thought. I have a little tadpole in my mind now. Um, (laughs) And one thing that Baldur's Gate does that actually really old D&D did also is that it prioritizes showing you a numerical range rather than a dice code, right? Like a like magic missile shows damage three through 12 or 
something like that rather than sure. 3d4 and in older editions of DD, you often had to reverse engineer that number into dice uh when you're playing that game do you like that do you, do you like it for a video game but hate it for an rpg do you think well, that the reason works? the reason i like it for a video game is because i don't have to roll the dice so i don't mm-hmm. have to figure out like as long as i know what that range is that is enough information for me to decide whether I'm going to try to cast one spell or another, right? Mm -hmm. Also, the spell's effect's contextual as well. Or Mm -hmm. decide which weapon I want to be equipped with. Um, But but I'm not rolling the dice, so I don't need that information. I know that the game is rolling the dice in the background. Uh, In a D&D game, the the DM is the game, right? They are Mm -hmm. the, the, the engine that's running the game. So if they don't have the dice that they need to roll in front of them, then they can't do the game you know like that 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 number range is just what the dice are going to add up to hidden away because you don't need to know that for the context of playing Baldur's gate i have noticed that in Baldur's gate i because remember remember my bewilderment the first time i found out that Baldur's gate rolls dice at all like it visually represents the rolling of any dice i thought that was frankly a little bit strange um, sure. I still think it is kind of, but I, I have noticed that playing Baldur's Gate 3, I kind of don't register how much damage I'm doing. Like I might look at the range and be like, ah, this one does more damage than that one, so I'll cast this one. But then I'm fully focused on did the attack hit or did it miss? And then mm-hmm. I don't look at the health bar to see how far it went down. None of that. I'm just like, yeah, now we move on to the next person. Um, so I think I, it becomes much more of a binary for me, hit or miss. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I think I'm the same, especially because it just happens so quickly as well. It's like you hit and the damage is done and then it kind of moves on to the next thing that you're going to do. I'll look at the health bar to see how much health they have left and look at my damage ranges to be like, okay, could I? is there a good probability that I'm going to be able to pull this off? Um, and so many times I have not allotted enough magic missiles to kill a thing, which is infuriating <laughs> when they have one hit point left. Uh, at the And you're like, oh, I should have should have cast at a higher level but but i agree with you that i'm not kind of you know uh uh strictly looking at their health necessarily as much as i might be uh at a tabletop the second question i have of this this srd is 140 pages i think 120 pages 140 pages and the 5e srd is 400 pages uh, now that's not a fair comparison necessarily but the reason from a glance that these uh there's such a big disparity is just from the number of stat blocks and the number of magic items and the number of spells that are included in the 5e SRD, it's pretty comprehensive for being able to create a 5e adventure. And what's missing from the 5e SRD in terms of like other, you know, more than one subclass or, um, you know, certain spells are missing for or renamed for, for legal reasons but one of the reasons it says we don't include every subclass for every class in the SRD is because this document isn't intended for you to just reprint. Uh, it's intended for you to create your own subclasses or your own sub or, or, or your own classes or your own spells, et cetera, et cetera. The problem I see with the the Cobalt Press one is that because the 5e one is so all-encompassing, while there is a lot of freedom to create your own stuff, there's also uh, a lot of weight lifted off of, especially first-time uh, adventure writers who are like, oh, there should be some treasure in this room. What's a magic item from the SRD that I think would fit in this room so that they don't have to invent 10, 20, 
or however many, maybe maybe five to ten new magic items themselves, they can create three to four new magic items and they've got six possibilities that they've pulled from the SRD, which doesn't seem as likely with the Cobalt Press one because it's not as comprehensive for creating Tales of the Valiant or Black Flag adventures. Um, part of my question of this is, are the two SRDs compatible? Because the game is so similar, could I write an adventure for Black Flag and use content from the 5e SRD that's not in Black Flag, reworked a little bit to, to fit into Black Flag, to convert to Black Flag more effectively? I'm not sure you could have before the OGL crisis, but now that the 5e SRD is within the Creative Commons, I'm pretty sure that as long as you list both licenses... Creative Commons and the uh, Black Flag SRD, then then you're good. Okay. okay. Anyway, I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> but <laughs> asterisk, right. asterisk, asterisk. Because you have to throw in the Orc license here, because that's what the uh, that's what this SRD is is uh, put out under. Mm. So now you're now you're got that on top of the other on top of yeah. You can make whatever you want. You can pull in or pull out different things because. You can create under either both or I guess neither if you want to go <laughs> in a completely different direction. Uh, so it's, I mean, Wizards of the Coast talked about putting stuff out under the Orc license. Yeah. Really. Right. Because, yeah, as long as it didn't contain anything that they didn't want to get out into the, you know, for anyone to use, if as long as they could protect their their IP or certain things that they need to protect they why what would stop them yeah okay so in that in that case the um you might create an adventure using both licenses uh and both srds and the black flag srd is really there not for you to pull magic items from necessarily but understand the the writing format of black flag to be able to convert things across into black flag is that kind of the used case for that srd if it's not just being used kind of on its own i would say so yes oh man this is making me unnostalgic for earlier this year when we were crawling through legal <laughs> advice every single week because <laughs> then you'd have both the the open game license and the orc in your book i don't know how much of the orc you have to include in, i know you Currently, under the uh, at least under the old rules, you had to include like a copy of the open game license in your product to sort of indicate that this is a an open game license product. I don't know off the top of my head, Sean. I'm not sure if you know or, or anybody else for that matter. I can't imagine you have to include the whole orc because the orc orcs like twelve pages long or something like that. Um, that I don't know. I, I haven't okay. been paying close enough attention to what's going on with the orc license uh, to to know all the specific details. It, it really depends on the wording of it. If, mm -hmm. if they haven't got a section that says in order to comply with this, then you have to include this section of text, then I think the, the presumption is that you have to include the entirety of the text. And that's whew, a real pain sometimes. <laughs> that was a, a big criticism of mine during the OGL days um was when uh licenses weren't clarifying that you know you only have to include this section because sure it's not practical to expect a, a third-party product to include 12 pages of licensing details yeah 
it looks like we're giving Gandalf a migraine on his day <laughs> off. So <laughs> having Nam flashbacks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's just the uh, shell shocked hamster suddenly. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, look, that's a thing. Uh, if you want to create uh, a Valiant uh, or Tales of the Valiant or Black Flag content, um, Ghostfire Gaming is so. Have at thee. Um, quick critical role roundup. Now, uh, I have no context for this because I'm not a huge live music person necessarily. I enjoy live music, but I'm just not in that scene. And when I told Dante this this morning, his jaw just about hit the, uh, hit the floor. Um, uh, critical role did their live UK performance. Uh, it was a reunion of the Mighty Nine. So they went back to campaign two and they sold out Wembley Arena with more than 12,000 fans watching uh, the performance. Uh, and there is footage online of the the whole audience singing Your Turn to Roll, which uh, was the, the theme song from the Mighty Nine Days, uh, like it's a rock concert, uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, have we made it? Are we there yet? Have, is D&D mainstream now? The sad truth is no. <laughs> if they had sold out Wembley Stadium, then we would have made it. Even then, what does mainstream even mean, right? Like, I remember mm. the year that every every news article was like, the the band that has outsold Taylor Swift this year, the, the band that has sold the most albums in the world this year is a band you've never heard of, and it was a rashi, and they're just- they're a Japanese pop band, so of course in the West people aren't paying attention. But you know sure. what I mean? It's like, what is mainstream? You have a, a group that's constantly selling out like sixty thousand seat stadiums, and it means nothing in America. Because everything, everything is American, right? The world is American, pop culture is American. And if it didn't happen in the American audience, it didn't happen. You know who's not American? Is Liam Neeson, star of Battleship. <laughs> <laughs> He's Irish. <laughs> Got him. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. You said the magic word. There is a difference broadly between arenas and stadiums. Uh, there's there's arenas, stadiums, and domes, and they're all different sized venues. Can you define the venue, uh, the difference between them? Uh, arenas are smaller. <laughs> go to go to watch Queen playing Live Aid. That's oh, Wembley yes! Stadium. <laughs> Watch the right. so just a thing. really good That's concert moment. Wembley Arena. There you go. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense because, yeah, when I put this in the run sheet and I was looking back at it, there was a very real chance I could have misspoken and said Wembley Stadium because I've heard of Wembley Stadium. I didn't realize I didn't realize that there was a difference between Wembley Stadium and Wembley Arena. So uh, I mean, that, to be that does fair, put it in context. Now I feel like we're underselling it. 12,000 fans, huge, huge. That's huge. <laughs> it's <Right>. not nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 12,000 fans in one place, you know, that's just the population of the UK kind of going to, uh, uh, you know, travelling from around, I would assume, uh, to see this live. So, um, you know, could, not not that I mean to draw direct comparisons necessarily, but is this a sign that the industry is kind of hitting a, hitting a rock star level uh, even in the the low, or, or or is this a unique thing to Critical Role? Like Dimension Twenty couldn't sell out a twelve thousand person arena, could that? That's a question, not a statement. Hey, let me tell you this: Critical Role could get Stephen Colbert doing charity with them. I don't mm-hmm. think Wizards was able to do that. Yeah, this might be a Critical Role thing. Yeah, okay. And did you just um, say that the population of the UK was twelve thousand people? Did I, no, did I? I said <laughs> okay. okay. I, I all twelve thousand people in the UK attended. Right. <laughs> That's not what I intended to say. What I okay. meant was I, that 
particularly for, you know, people that have an online audience, uh, you know, the Lawcast listeners are from all over the world, you know, uh, how many of them could we get in one room if we were to do, you know, a live episode on a, on a panel at Gen Con versus, you know, and, and mm-hmm. let's say, you know, Gen Con's maybe not a great example because the people are there specifically to go to tabletop RPG panels. Let's just say, you know, we did it as a, as a, you know, the theatre event at a, at a small venue, um, the fact that they could get 12,000 people from one locality as an online um, uh, uh, media company uh, is impressive in terms of, I suppose, their the saturation level of their audience, just how, how big it is in, in different areas. You know what I mean? I bet we could t- definitely get 12. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Solid dozens. There are dozens yeah, 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 of yeah. us. Yeah. Dozens. <laughs> yep. Speaking of Critical Role, uh, I thought I'd just mention this while we're doing a Critical Role roundup. Uh, they are doing, I think they did this last year as well, uh, and they're doing it again, uh, a Red Nose Day event. Um, nowhere near Red Nose Day, but that's the charity that it's uh, uh, benefiting, uh, where they're doing a live play um, with the cast, including Talison, Laura, Liam, uh, and also Tony Hale and Sam Richardson of television fame uh, with Matt Mercer as the GM. Hmm. Um, uh, You can go to tiltify.com or if you search tiltify critical role red nose day, you'll probably find it uh, where you can donate to decide the characters classes, uh, the inciting incident at the start of the adventure, uh, the treasure they find along the way, uh, the creature that's stalking the party and, and more. And it's all for a good cause. So go do that if you want to. Um, The actual streams on November 28th, at 5 p.m. Pacific. It is interesting <laughs> to me because uh, they previously did Red Nose Day with Stephen Colbert, right? That was yeah. the, the last two Stephen yep. Colbert's before mm-hmm. Red Nose Day. And we know that uh, Stephen had a backing in D&D. And so, you know, it's a it's slightly easier to get him to jump in on it. I'm curious what the D&D background is of, of Tony Hale and... Who was the second person? Sam Richardson. Uh, Sam Richardson. Sam if Richardson. I'm, I'm curious about- they were both on the show Veep, uh, for those of hey. you who watch that show. They're, they're going <laughs> to Veep D&D. Got it. Speaking of Critical Role, Nan and Row does not like Critical Role, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, Nan and Row emailed uh, podcast at ghostfiregaming.com to let us know that with a, a, a question as well. Um, uh, kind of uh, suggesting, and I, I think I may be guilty of this uh, to some capacity, um, uh, uh, that Critical Role is kind of overemphasized in its influence on the modern culture of D&D. You know, I think I've said a couple of times maybe on this law cast or pontificated upon Critical Role's influence uh, in terms of the move away from um, the, the kind of more gold and dungeon crawling adventure styles of the 80s into the really story-driven characters never die, where we've carry- our backgrounds are woven into the story kind of culture that D&D, uh, at least online, more predominantly seems to have uh, today. Um, uh, and Nat and Rose's theory or question really is about what about uh, the influence of games like Baldur's Gate, uh, Planescape Torment, uh, and then my editions being Elder Scrolls, Dragon Age, The Witcher, in which, you know, those games really are remembered for their story more so than their mechanics uh, necessarily or their dungeon crawling, you know, Um, and that if you die in those games, you just reload, come back, and you keep going. 
So you never have to deal with character death. Um, and that though the development of those kind of story-driven RPGs uh, in the video game space is part of what's contributed to that style of play in the video game in the tabletop space. Um, Speaking anecdotally, even when I was working with Geek and Sundry uh, and in college and looking for D&D groups, I found way more players through appealing to their love of Dragon Age than to them having any idea what Critical Role was. No, oh, this th- this is a huge <laughs> question, right? This goes back to maybe play styles, but has it affected the rules at all? Have, have video games affected the rules at all? Uh, have different play styles, have different fantasy, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, brands affected the rules at all? People said for fourth edition, oh, they're just trying to replicate WoW on a, on a tabletop, which no. is vaguely true, but didn't really uh, didn't really hold up under scrutiny. The game itself came from fiction. The game itself came from Tolkien. It came from Conan. It came from these things, right? So that's what affected the game more than anything, even 50 years later, uh, because there weren't video games then. Don't make me don't make me pull out my pong colossal <laughs> cave adventure stories again. Uh, so that's always been the case. Now, how people digest those rules may change. How people interpret and use those rules may change. But the rules themselves are pretty much always going to. I'm going to venture, at least in my lifetime, which God knows how long that is. But uh, will always be affected by that narrative uh, background, that story, the the fantasy fiction. I'm so glad you said that, Sean, because I, look, I nearly put together a PowerPoint presentation for this, but I ran out of time. Okay, so I just want to talk about um, D&D as virtual reality and phenomenological adherence to Aristotle's poetic structure. Okay, so um, in Aristotle's poetics, Tragedy, this is a quote, tragedy is an imitation of an action that is admirable, complete, and possesses magnitude, affecting through pity and fear the purification or the purging of such emotions. So we're talking about catharsis there. We're talking about a couple of different things. So phenomenology talks about the, the idea that essentially sensation creates existence, okay? So we experience a beingness uh, through a kind of a feedback loop. Okay, so as we perceive the world, we are creating the world. That's the only way for us to become real, in a sense. Um, So I would argue that the phenomenological body, the phenomenal body, uh, while it is bound up somewhat in, like, physicalized ideas of sensation, uh, it's not reliant on flesh. So it's more like a phantom limb. It's 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 a sensing extension of ourselves into virtual spaces. Now, cyber theory... (laughs) talks about how in virtual spaces we participate in the disembodied embodiment of actions, okay? So when you type LMAO in the group chat, you're probably not like literally laughing physically with your real like analog reality body, but somewhere out there in virtual space, there is a version of you that does laugh at that thing, right? It's 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 this... Um, this psychic double, which Julian Dibble describes as the body-like self-representation we carry around in our heads. So our psychic double can experience that can experience things and, and it makes those things in a sense real. All right. Are we following? 
So Dibble also suggests that virtual experiences are neither exactly real nor exactly make-believe, but are nonetheless profoundly, compellingly, and emotionally true. <laughs> I've brought out the quotes. The sharing of an individual's experience across both realms of real life and virtual reality makes sense only in the buzzing, dissonant gap between them. So Dibble is, is talking about cyberspace in a fairly um, sort of traditional context. He's, he's speaking on um, experiences that he had uh, in an old school moo chat, but he eventually specifically uh, calls out that cyberspace, he, he describes it as being a freeform version of Dungeons and Dragons. So we're really talking about a very similar thing here. The virtual reality that we're talking about, it isn't digital. It's it's a reality that we are make-believing into existence. Okay, so hauntologically, all right, there's, there's a hauntological aspect. So ontology is like beingness. Hauntology is, is the idea that an event or a thing can have presence without even having to actually be there, right? Like a ghost, it haunts you. So Aristotle says, the function of the poet is not to say what has happened, but to say the kind of thing that would happen, all right? Idea, the idea here is that um, a true universal experience, one that possesses magnitude, like he said, must be drawn from perceived happenings rather than actual physical events. Psychic doubling, all right? There you go, cyber theory is back again. So the imitation of an action that Aristotle describes can be read as not a literal reenactment, like it might sound, but as an acceptance and a summoning even of a reality which is not there but nonetheless has presence, okay? It impacts us. In taking on the character, a player in D&D is entering into a kind of a magic circle, okay? Which, which they accept the reality is bound up in invented principles, okay? We accept that you roll the dice to uh, complete an action. But this idea of this magic circle of rules began, it, it originated with Johann Huizinga, who talked about play as occurring in any spaces where the ordinary world is set aside to give way to fabricated rules and restrictions that are, are adhered to in the name of creating a sort of new virtual reality. Places within which special rules obtain. All are temporary worlds within the ordinary world dedicated to the performance of an act apart. But these are invented rules that permeate society. This is our experienced reality. You know, I, I talk about courts, right? We've made up the rules of how the judicial system works, but we all just, we believe it into existence. Uh, and in turn, these kinds of rule systems that we wrap up around any form of game, whether it be a societal game or whether it be a game like D&D, &D, they can in turn contribute an added layer of reality to the games that we play that access a virtual space like D&D. &D. So basically, when you hit zero hit points in game, you hit zero hit points in real life. That real life just happens to be virtual life, okay? So the reason I'm saying all of this is basically to just agree with what Sean said. It's that, yes, to a certain extent, games are influencing D&D, but D&D influenced video games. And the things that influence D&D is the massive history of storytelling all the way back to at least Aristotle, where we've just got this inherited idea of what makes up a, a real feeling narrative experience, one that accesses catharsis, one that accesses um, a, a sense of, of truth, even if it isn't simulation of reality. Um, so I, I do think that critical role is probably overstated in its influence because I think that all of uh, Western human history is the contributing factor. <laughs> See, I had that in my notes. I just didn't want to say it off. 
Dale, you've made us a much more highbrow podcast than usual wow. this week. I had to pull out an, an old university <laughs> presentation I did that was about Pokemon Nuzlocke storytelling online. <laughs> Our podcast. I want to read that presentation too. <laughs> Um, I was worried we wouldn't reach the end uh, of the hour there, but we've done it handily. And then Dale talked for 20 minutes. <laughs> um, uh, which is a great thing, which is a good thing, because it means I can save our next email for next week. Um, uh, if you've been listening to this episode, I should say before, we haven't done this in so long, uh, because I just assume that people know where to find us now. Our handles are below our names. But if they don't, James Hake... This has been, uh, speaking of reheating news, where can people find you on the internet, specifically YouTube? I'm going to say this dressed like Gandalf. In the last <laughs> month, I launched a YouTube channel at James J. Hake on YouTube, where I talk about game design. I take an analytical look at tabletop role-playing games, the culture surrounding it sometimes, but really a designerly look at the craft and business of being a game designer. Yeah, I, I hope you go check me out there. Twitter is burning. Don't follow me on Twitter anymore. Find me, find me <laughs> on a platform that's actually alive. I also have a YouTube channel. It's called Monarchs Factory. Look, Twitter is burning, but I am still there uh, at Daily Dale. <laughs> I also have a YouTube channel that uh, handles the podcast I do with Teo Sabadia called Mastering Dungeons, the 1.5 most popular uh, podcast in all the realms. <laughs> and so you can check out there. And I'm on most social media at Sean Merwin. Uh, and you can find me over on the Ghostfight Gaming main YouTube channel where I do YouTube videos specifically around dark fantasy and grounding your campaign and an emotionally authentic realm of grittiness <laughs> and darkness. Anyway, go check that out. And with our powers combined, we are the Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, subscribe, do all those things. We'd really appreciate it. We've had a lot of new listeners in the last couple of weeks. Um, so thank you so much for joining. If you're a recent listener or even if this is your first episode of the Lawcast, we will be back next week. However, oh, actually, all right, I'm going to say this now in a non-committal way for our American hosts. I'm pretty sure we've discussed this ahead of time. Next week, we'll be recording at 3 p.m., uh, Pacific Standard Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time um, because of daylight savings change. Um, so 6 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Uh, wait, no, I got that the wrong way around. 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. You guys live in America. Still you, 10 a.m. figure it out. Still Eastern 10 a.m. Australia. Uh, Australia. So in every other time zone, it's not changing. It's just if you're in the United States uh, and you've got daylight savings changing, then it's moving uh forward an hour back an hour i'm not sure which way that goes but it's it's an hour earlier uh my name has been ben Byrne. uh here with uh james hake uh sorry brain farted there almost said <laughs> almost said james dale that would have been <laughs> awkward all right i'm gonna what? do that again <laughs> my name has been ben Byrne here with uh, james oh no i almost did it again <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> no, it's so spooky in here. I think my brain's overheating from having this satin bag on my head for <laughs> the last hour. Um, <laughs> money. <laughs> Dale, you do it. You. <laughs> His name is Ben Byrne. He's been here with James Hake, Sean Moen, and Dale Kingsmill. And we will catch you next time on the Eldritch Lawcast. Bubba da bubba da, bubba da ba. Bubba da ba. Bubba da ba ba. Yeah, great. <laughs> Good work. Good work, everyone. <laughs> um. <laughs>
Delightful. Delightful. You know what? Delightful. Sometimes a costume doesn't match the temperature, the ambient temperature. 